I just remember not hearing anything Ricky Martin said to me. Like <laughs> I, I just just looked at him and I was like, you are so gorgeous. introverts, extroverts, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Chelsea Heaney, and I'm very excited about our guest today. She's an extremely talented actress here in Australia. She's played Mary in Jesus Christ Superstar, Lauren in Kinky Boots, and Fanny Bryce in Funny Girl, and she was even on Team Kylie on The Voice a few years ago. She sings, she acts, she writes, and as far as I'm aware, she's the only guest I've had on so far who actually told Ricky Martin that she had a crush on him to his face on national TV. Please welcome to the show, Brittany Shipway. Hello. You had to bring that up, didn't you? I did, of course, of course. <laughs> I couldn't do this without bringing that up. Um, thank you for coming on the show. I want to start with uh, what I believe is a very important question, uh, which is, am I the best understudy that you've ever had? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've earned your hundred dollars. Um. <laughs> no, you were great to work with. It was good fun. It was a really supportive environment. We did kinky boots together down uh, with Free Rain in Canberra, and yes. um, I played Laura. And Chelsea understudied me and did a wonderful job. Tried to push me down the stairs a few times, but it's fine. I remember there was one show because I kept being like, it could just not show up and it'd be fine. And there was one show where you got to the theatre really late and I was just like, where is that bitch? I, I need more notice than this. <laughs> I've never gotten so many messages from one human being in such a short space of time before. <laughs> it's great. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> we'll move on to talking more about you. Um, when did you first start getting into singing and acting and performing? Oh, when I was a little kid, really. I think that all of us that live in towns or urbanised cities um, have a lot of opportunities available to us that kids in rural places don't in Australia. So mm. I started off with community theatre. I think I was about nine or eight or something when I did my first production, Les Mis, played Young Cosette with a, a local community theatre in the Blue Mountains and um, then went on to play Eponine when I was 15 and the next one and then Eponine again and the next one and then Eponine <laughs> again and the next one. And Oh, wait, no, that was my romantic life, not a not a musical. But, uh, yeah, so... I've been in Lamey's a few times. Fontaine's next, I think. And yeah, then I was going to say, Nadia. Fontaine next, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Eventually you'll play Javert. And <laughs> I know. Like, I've got enough facial hair for it. Like, I, yeah, <laughs> ready, ready. <laughs> um, so, obviously, you said you, you um, started when you were nine. You, you did a lot of amateur theatre. Um, when did you decide to actually pursue it professionally because obviously it's a it's a profession that you know a lot of people want to do and not a lot of people necessarily succeed at so it's sort of a, a big decision to go no I'm I'm gonna do this I'm gonna pursue this I mean in regards to making that big decision I'd probably say I was about 16 mm -hmm. and playing Eponine yeah and I just really enjoyed 
the process of creating a character, I found that sinking my teeth into somebody else's quirks and personalities, also the fact that I had this amazing literary text that I could refer to, um, Victor Hugo's uh, Les Mis, was really interesting as well. And and I'd, I liked the process more than I liked performing, to be honest. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and then everybody, of course, on top of that tells you, you're so talented, and they pinch your cheeks and say, oh, sweetheart, it's a God-given talent. You must pursue it. It's like I've been singing since I was six years old. It's not bloody talent. It's hard work, you twat. So, I mean, you have a bit of that pressure, and I got to a certain age where I thought, oh, maybe this isn't for me because I did all the auditions like everybody does straight out of uni, you know, you you go – audition for Whopper and NIDA and VCA and all of that sort of thing. And and I, they they set out a lot of promise. They told me to come back when I was a dancer um, and had a bit more life experience. And I just remember thinking at the time, mate, you have no idea what I've been through, you know. Like <laughs> I could yeah. have more life experience than all of you combined. And although, you know, I would say I probably had been through more than people my age when I first graduated, now that I'm older, at the ripe old age of 27, um, <laughs> I do I do actually get what they mean. So yeah. it, it makes a lot of sense. But, yeah, it took me a while to uh, transition from that bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, oh, I, I just want to be on the stage, I just want to perform person to becoming an artist and realising that at the end of the day our job is to tell stories and to reflect um, you know, the society that we live in or that we have lived in in the past, sometimes to make people laugh, but more often than not to show the consequences of humanity and mm-hmm. and we live out the bad on stage so that our audiences don't have to, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah. It, it, it took a long while to transition into that phase, um, you know, from 16 to 27, you know, 11 years it took me to kind of get here. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as I started making those choices and I started thinking of myself as a as a storyteller and not just an actor who wants the glory on stage, my career made huge shifts mm. and uh, and it was pretty amazing when you start talking like an artist, which sounds like a bunch of wank, let's be honest, but <laughs> when you do start talking like an artist and a practitioner, uh, people see you differently and you don't have that air of desperation around you in the foyer. Yeah. Uh, uni really helps with that, but it's hard because often... We're not given the opportunity to go to these unis in the first place. Because they're like, oh, come back later. And you're like, well... You're trying to get into uni for the life experience and to learn those skills, so it's tricky. So I, I guess my advice to those people was go travel, go do other things, anything else that isn't related to theatre and you'll come back a more well-rounded Slightly less annoying human being. <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, really fair enough. And and you mentioned uni there as well. You did go to NIDA eventually. How old were you when, when you went to NIDA? I was about 24. But, see, I didn't do the bachelor's course. I only applied for the Diploma of Musical Theatre, which was a course in its second or third year, I think, uh, yeah. in this particular version of it. And, um, <clears throat> you know, NIDA had recognised that they needed to 
to have a musical theatre course and mm. at that point in time they were still figuring out what that looked like. Was it a bridging course to encourage younger students to go on to Whopper or something like that or was it a course that sent its students out into the big, wide, scary industry? Yeah. And um, and I it was definitely figuring that out when I was there. Um, and there was a huge gap in, in ages as well. Um, you know, yeah. We had, we had 18-year-olds and, and 24, 25-year-olds. At that point, I'd done quite a lot of um, of work as a corporate entertainer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm probably a little bit more established or knew who I was and my value as a performer compared to, yeah. you know, brand-new students, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there was a lot of talent in that room and, and they're all going on to do amazing, wonderful things. Um, yeah, a great cohort, and we just had amazing teachers. I got some great advice from the guy, Mark Gahl, who was running the course at the time, who said, you will get from this course what you put into it. If you know everything in the world and you have all these experiences in work and theatre, leave it at the door and come in fresh. And he was so right. The people that we got to learn from, you know, Philip Quast, royalty you know like I, mm. oh, I shat myself when he walked in the room lame <laughs> is comes to haunt me again <laughs> and like incredible directors like tyron park walking in who i'm such a fan of and, and have had the opportunity to work with since then mm. um just a bunch of amazing human beings yeah. that you go oh my god like you are the kind of storytellers i i like and admire yeah. and I get to work with you and I get to come into uni every day and, and hone my craft and make explorations and make mistakes and it's not a it's not so terrifying, you know. And I just kind of learnt how to play again and yeah. be a child and take risks and not not take myself too bloody seriously as we want to do as actors, you know. Yeah. We're a yeah. rotten breed, Chelsea. We're absolutely <laughs> rotten. I remember a few years ago... Um, because I'm initially from Melbourne and then moved to Canberra and my uh, my parents were up visiting me and so we had a barbecue with a few of like my mates around so they could meet some of the people I was hanging out with in Canberra and some of my workmates were there and they were chatting with my mum and my mum said to them so is Chelsea the first uh, friend you've had that that does theatre and they went yeah it's different <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay, yeah. I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take that, yeah. It's funny, isn't it, the way that other people perceive you? I don't know what it's like with you, Chelsea, but I have done all my online personality quiz tests and uh, (laughs) I'm I'm very equally introverted, extroverted. Yeah. So a tad more extroverted, um, but I really regain my batteries by or recharge my batteries by being alone and doing my own thing. No, I completely get that. And, you know, that's something we talk about a lot on this podcast is that sort of introvert, extrovert thing. And I think we've mentioned this in a previous episode, but a lot of people just sort of assume that all performers are extroverts because they're able to get up on stage, which is something that people who don't do that find terrifying. But I think Mm. there's so many of us who, like, that's our outlet and that's, like, the thing that we can do and we're not necessarily extroverted in in other parts of our lives obviously everyone's different and there are people who who are actors who are just complete extroverts but yeah I completely understand that 
very mixture between um being introvert and extrovert and yeah I'm the same like sitting at home and you know reading or working or 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 whatever it is does recharge me and then after a while I'm like I need to see people I need people now Mm -hmm. that's now that I've recharged I need I need to go use that energy on other people how have you gone with uh COVID restrictions because that's changed everything on its head hey yeah I think that was has been sort of what has made me go oh I am more extroverted than I thought because I think when I was a kid I thought I was extroverted and then as I grew up I was like no I'm an introvert and now I'm like (laughs) okay I have a bit of extrovert in me because I live alone as well I live alone but I I was still able to go to work so I was seeing people at work every day which was good but it was that um like you know when when you're rehearsing for a show you know in amateur theater you're rehearsing three times a week I also do stand-up so I'd have stand-up basically once a week and it's that incidental like not having to organize to catch up with people but you're seeing your friends multiple times a week anyway it was Mm. that that I was missing um because it wasn't like I wasn't necessarily like organizing to catch up with a friend you know two or three times a week but I would just see them anyway because of theatre or comedy. Um, yeah, so that's, I think, what I found difficult with, and with COVID. And let's be fair, Canberra is incestuous. Oh. You <laughs> run into everyone. Yes, yes, you do. Yes, yes you do. It's a very small town. <laughs> I Even when I lived in Melbourne, anywhere I went, I would see people I know. Um, I was in um, Sydney Airport once just, like, catching a like I'd caught a plane to Sydney and I was catching a plane to somebody else and as I was walking between terminals I saw somebody I knew (laughs) I see people everywhere I go (laughs) there's no escape no um anyway (laughs) um (laughs) I wanted to ask you with you know um you you've done opportunity you're now doing it professionally obviously there's a difference in quality but in terms of sort of the environment and the relationships, what are some of the differences between doing amateur theatre and doing it professionally? Uh, oh, that's a tricky one. I guess there's so much heart and raw energy in community theatre that I don't think commercial theatre has learnt how to bridle and, and harness yet. Um, but, yes, in professional theatre they have a lot more resources and a lot more money and the people who are all a part of it are highly trained individuals. It's such a competitive professional market. So, um, of course, it's very slick. Um, during rehearsals, there's probably the biggest difference, I would say. Um, when you're donating your time, there's less expected of you, yeah. whereas in a professional environment, it is your job it's and there is job, so much, yeah, exactly, it's so much pressure to... Um, make sure that you're conducting yourself in a professional manner and that, uh, you know, you you give the best product that you possibly can and you adhere to the director's vision. Um, There's no talking back. There's no um, arguing with anybody. You're just there to do a job. And if you do those things or you're late or um, dressed inappropriately or whatever, you don't last long. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, like, you know, 
you've probably seen people who have the talent to make it as professionals but maybe can't deal with that switch from the more casual community theatre to then being like, oh, I have to be professional now and then, you know, don't get hired again because people don't want to work with people who are going to slow things down or be unprofessional. Absolutely. And I think that's what those institutions say when they they tell you to get life experience because mm. you need to know if this is what you want to do. And it's not a question of, are you passionate enough? Have you listened to the Hamilton album <laughs> enough? You know, do you want this? It, there's no question that you love performing. Everyone wants and you, it. And yeah, and we love yeah. musical theatre, but do you want to make it your job? Like is that really yeah. something you want to do? Do you want to go to a 1,000 auditions or if you're in Australia, two a year, you know, like <laughs> If, if that's something you want to do and, and you don't really want to make much money and you want to have arguments and find agents and, uh, you know, fights with producers or, you know, or no fights, whatever. But if that's something you that interests you, if the industry itself interests you, awesome. But there's no question that theatre and performing interests you. We all know yeah. that. But when they talk about life experience, that is what they mean. Also, you know, it makes you a better actor and you can yeah. connect lyrics to song much better, but um, that's a whole other whole other thing. Yeah. I remember when I was at uni, because um, I studied theatre as well, and um, we had had a guest lecturer come in. He'd come in for about three weeks and he was fantastic. I can't remember the name of the, the company he runs, but it was a very sort of um, sort of playful type of theatre that he did and we did a lot of theatre games and it was really great, it was a really enjoyable few weeks and on his last lecture with us he basically sat us down and was like okay here's the reality of being an actor he's like you know a bunch of you are probably going to become alcoholics at some point, you're not going to make much money, like it was like a real talk and it had gone like it was like a, a switch had flicked because you know it was a lot of playful stuff that we had been doing with this particular guest lecturer and then he was just like i got to get real with with you guys you know this is this is the reality of it and and if it scares you um you know either either fight through that fear and make yourself stronger or or maybe find something else because you're gonna I mean, be strong the problem i have with that and that is the narrative at every university and it's not uh, inaccurate but mm. it's telling you and teaching you right from the get-go that you are to be passive and to wait don't do that. You know, you are, mm. you are more than just an actor. Sure, if you sit and wait for a job to fall in your lap or even to get an audition, which is impossible in commercial theatre if you don't have an agent, and even then it can be hard. Yeah. Um, you know, like they need a recognised name because producers say, I'm investing time and money into these people. I want to make sure that they've been tried and tested. Yeah. You understand it from their perspective, but stop thinking like an actor and start thinking of yourself as a, an artist. You know, yeah. God, I've got my teacher voice on. But it's it's such a true thing, you know, um, because you've got to make your own work and, and I don't mean another bloody cabaret, you know. <laughs> People have killed cabaret in, in this bloody country and I just wish they wouldn't. You know, find the specific thing that makes you different and you and makes you think that you won't get work from and make money from that. Yeah. Anything you're insecure about in your body or your mind or your skill set, Make that your advantage. You know what I mean? And and yeah, know your yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And know your product, you know? 
um, point it out to the world. It doesn't have to be cabaret. It could be a podcast. It could be writing a play, which I've just picked up, or, you know, lyrics for a musical or anything, or producing. It doesn't matter. If you want to make a career out of this, you have to be multi-skilled. You know, don't dumb yourself down. It will make you a terrible performer and highly depressed and unmotivated. Yeah, yeah. And something I, I wanted to bring up with you as well is that work that you're doing. You've been writing some songs for musicals. You've also recently started um, developing a play as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about that side of it that you sort of started delving into? Yeah, I guess um, I, since uni I have been very lucky to always pick up a contract um, after work. I get another one, another job coming in and I don't don't have to wait long in between which has been such a blessing but after kinky bits my my pacing kind of ran out a little bit and uh, I sat there for four months going oh my god all I'm doing is teaching and as much as I love it um I want to be working as an artist yeah so I was lucky enough to become uh, a cast member of a national tour of the sapphires Mm -hmm. which is a an Indigenous play by Tony Briggs, who directed this particular production as well. And uh, we were to go to every state and territory except Canberra. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, we were meant to do 170-plus shows in the course of 10 months, Mm. all through regional areas of Australia, which I think is bloody awesome. And then five shows in, we were recalled, um, told to come back home. Two was rescheduled COVID. for next year because of yeah, because of COVID. Yeah. And I think we all, everybody in our industry and in the world in general, sort of had to sit back and reevaluate. And for the first couple of months, I was so, so depressed. I moved in with my aunt and uncle, and I'm looking across the road right now at my my ma and pa's house, the house I grew up in, a tiny little farm in the middle of nowhere. And I just felt I'd regressed back to being 18 and everything I'd done in between, Mm. none of it mattered. The fact that the government weren't giving us funding or making us ineligible for all of these um, JobKeeper um, situations. I I couldn't apply for JobKeeper as a sole trader because with Hit Productions I was getting paid a wage, but they weren't eligible to apply for JobKeeper on my behalf either. So... Yeah. As we all know, we all slip through the cracks. Yeah. And, um, and that made it really difficult. It made you really reevaluate your worth to the industry and as a person because we as performers invest so much of ourselves in our work. Mm. And if we're not working, are we worth, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to do a, a lot of rethinking and, and then I was approached by James Miller to um, write some lyrics uh, for a new musical that was being developed called Coburg, Melbourne. It was written by a gentleman called Michael Birmingham and he was a part of the Hope's New Development Project, which was an online initiative that James Miller had started along with a couple of other key creatives to um, really encourage the writing process and and. It was so great because it was a, a progress-based platform as opposed to um, a product-based mm-hmm. yeah. development, if that makes any sense. So many times, uh, because we don't have a lot of new theatre in Australia, we've got all these independent theatre companies picking up new uh, development initiatives, but it's always 
competitive and it's always to get the end result of putting on this new fantastic work. But if you're a new writer, your first piece is probably going to be rubbish, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stephen, Stephen Sondheim has said he writes six musicals and he picks one and trashes the rest, you know. like, And that's Sondheim. If Sondheim does yeah. that, you know, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's ridiculous. So this was really good, um, this this whole process. And, and I'd never written lyrics for a musical before, but as an actor... Obviously, I understand the, the process of a character's yeah. thoughts. So, and I'd loved it so much and worked on another project uh, with the Hopes development for, um, for another musical as, a, as an actor. And I thought, oh, I really like dramaturgical work and, and writing might be something I should look at, especially if I want to advise other writers on how I think they should structure their piece. Maybe yeah. I should put my money where my mouth is. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm a little bit empathetic, you know, to the situation. And, and so I, I sat down the day after Mother's Day and and wrote a play in two days. And I went, oh, wow. that's not that's not too hard. And then, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, but the process afterwards is bloody awful. I tell you what, you know, obviously this story has been sitting in me for a while. Um, it's about mothers and daughters and half Turkish on my father's side and on my mother's side I'm a Gumbanga woman so um, our, our mob's up in Yurunga and there's so many interesting stories there that nobody ever knows or hears about and I just thought there's a massive gap in the market in theatre that I sit there as an audience member disappointed by producers telling me over and over again, there's just no new stories, you know. I just don't know where they are. You know, where'd they get to? Why are we saying the same boy meets girl, girl plot device, the end, yeah. beautiful? Um, and I went, oh, they're all around you. You're just not asking the right questions yeah. and you don't have the right storytellers. So, you know, but this is this is my little contribution, I suppose, and... And it was just an exercise. I never thought anything would come from it. But um, a director friend of mine, Miranda Middleton, read the play and and said, oh, you should apply for funding for that. And I did on a whim and we got two grants, one from New South Wales Create and the other one from um, the Australian Council for the Arts. So we were very lucky. Yeah, very, very lucky. And it's awesome to be able to cast and work with other First Nations women. And I can pay them, which is even better. And it feels really good to have full autonomy over my own storytelling. And we are grossly misunderrepresented by agencies. Um, I wouldn't say that's agency's fault, but uh, there's a massive issue in the market and yeah. and it's because the stories aren't being told in the first place. So let's get the right kind of actors in the room in the first place. So yeah. this will be good. It's been good. Yeah, it's really exciting. And, um, yeah, I'm really excited to see see how that turns out and see where it takes you but it's yeah very exciting thing and I a few weeks ago you know I'm not sure which of those projects you were working on but you you messaged me to help you find um some information for a song that that you were writing because it's an area I know a bit about and you know you messaged me at like it was maybe 10 30 or something and and I was like <laughs> oh if you check out this place you'll you'll probably find it and and then at like 1 a.m you're like that was great I finished the song I was like it's been like two and a half hours <laughs> how on earth did you do that it just blew my mind but yeah the way you talk about you know the work and and 
pushing yourself through through that sort of stuff and yeah it makes sense that you're able to to churn out something great in oh I mean it could be absolutely um <laughs> ass trap let's be honest but <laughs> I think I think everybody has a different process which is what I'm learning I am renowned especially with um friends and partners and things for being incredibly impatient so I'm a I'm a fire element and I will get it done I will write an entire bloody play in two days I don't care if it's crap Mm -hmm. I will go back and fix it you know the next day but if I don't pump it out straight away then nothing's going to come from it and and I've had amazing mentors you know James Miller was so helpful with that whole process with writing lyrics and pointed out a few very obvious stuff that I just didn't think of, you know. Yeah. It's like, um, Brittany, why aren't you doing this, you know. <laughs> um, and I've been told for so long to write and I just thought, oh, what, another cabaret? And um, and now I've discovered, no, it's not another cabaret, it's everything else, God damn it. Everything else. It's <laughs> mm. so. fantastic. Um, I want to go back a little bit to talk more about uh, your acting side of things and, and sort of how you got started. Do you remember what? What was your first ever paid gig? Whoa, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, see, I'm getting real old now. I can't oh, even God. think No, that. you're not. <laughs> oh, my God. I have no, no idea. That's fair. Um, actually, I think I was. So although musicals happened for me at the age of eight, I my mum put me into singing lessons when I was six. Mm-hmm. Um, my mum was quite young and very obsessed with Madonna. She almost called me LaDonna. And um, and Young Talent Time was a, a big Aussie show on yes. at the time. And, and Tina Arena and all that sort of thing. So anyway, she thought that I had a voice at six. Who knows? I've yet to hear a recording that proves it. And... Um, booked me in for some singing lessons and I remember within six months I was doing a singing competition and I won a hundred dollars or something but it was a hundred dollar gift voucher for Maccas. Yeah. Oh you know? good. <laughs> That's not necessarily a professional gig but uh, yeah. and then I, I think at seven um, I started singing at weddings. At seven? Yeah. So you That's see, the most adorable wedding singer in the world. <laughs> exactly. You know, I could have been absolutely rotten, but, oh, there's a, a kid that's 30 centimetres high, you know. If I was the bride, I'd be annoyed, <laughs> though, because you'd be getting all the attention. Well, the priest would always get mad. I, I remember the first time I did it, um, people clapped when I'd finished. And um, I remember what I sang too. Uh, perhaps love is da da da. Perhaps love that one. And um, yeah, the priest was like sh- sh- shushing people up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! I yeah. love that I describe myself as thirty centimeters tall at the age of seven. You know, yes. that's a ruler. Grossly inaccurate, but you know. I think what's worse is that I didn't even pick up on it. I was just like, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. I see normally I'd let it go but I'm like this is being recorded people will think that I'm an absolute idiot and I am but I don't want them to know it yet (laughs) the first episode of the podcast came out last week and we talked about it um the like seven degrees of separation and which I love and we talked about it for ages and my dad listened to the podcast and was like um Chelsea it's six it's six degrees (laughs) of separation I was like oh no 
we talked about it for so long. We kept saying seven. <laughs> so um, this is me um, recanting the, the first episode when I kept saying it was seven. It's six, six degrees of separation. <laughs> I going to get to this episode then and didn't write you off. Yes. Okay. They didn't and just go, well, magic. she's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> Not listen to any more of this crap. Oh, God. <laughs> um, speaking of um, you doing singing competitions, uh, you were on season three of The Voice. What a segue. I know. I'm very good. Oh, you're très good, très good. I speak French now. <laughs> Um, yeah, the voice was super cool. It was weird. It was a super weird experience. I remember being super nervous um, when I had my blind. I had to wake up at one in the morning for my friend to do my hair and makeup for me. And um, I live out in Western Sydney, so had to hop in the car and drive to Fox Studios. And I just kept vomiting in a plastic bag. And um, oh. my grandfather went with me, my pa, who's now passed away. Um, and he was such a quiet man, but boy, did he have a good time on that show. It ended, oh, there we go, my computer in the background. Um, I reckon my pa had a better time on The Voice than I did. He was the whole, he was the whole reason I auditioned in the first place. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a grueling process, especially for that age. Because you, know, you were 20, what, right? 20, 21, something like that, yeah. And just didn't know who the heck I was, you know. I, I think for anybody considering getting into those shows, don't do it until you know what your product is yeah. and what your brand is because they really, their job, the producer's job is to help find that for you. Yeah. Uh, and they will push you in that direction because they're, they're on a quick, tight turnaround, you know, yeah. that they need to understand what your brand is so they can try and share that with other people. And if you don't know it, you've got no clue. So yeah, make sure you've got products out there that people can sell before you participate in the show, you know, get an album album out, EPs, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Have something available for people to pick up on. I don't know how useful it is for musical theatre people. Because um, I was I was really interested because I, I haven't watched all that much of The Voice, but I remember, I'm not sure if it was before or after your season, there was a kid who went on and he did a musical theatre song and they basically said to him, look, you know, you've got a great voice for musical theatre, but this isn't really the place for that. But you sang on my own and you, you did a musical theatre song and you got all four chairs turned around for you. Was that, did you, did you, choose that song because obviously we've talked about how you've done Les Mis a few times and you just <laughs> felt comfortable with with that song or was that uh, sort of in consideration for you? I mean, not really. So when you when you apply for The Voice, you send in a video submission or you did mm-hmm. back all the years ago that I did it and, um, and then you get to the next round and then you go in uh, and you sing for them and then they say, great, can you give us a rep list, like a repertoire list? Mm-hmm. And you've got to give them 100 songs. Yeah. And they go through and, and say, no, nah, no, nah, yep, yep. But you've got your top three choices um, yeah. at, at, at the top of the list. And on my own, I, I knew that I sang the crap out of it. You know, I'd done Eponine that many bloody times. And um, <laughs> and then, you know, they, they always say, I've got so many students that come to me and they go, oh, I don't want to do this song because it's overdone. And I said, you can do it. you just got to be better than the original. Yeah. Or you're going to be better than or stand to your stand up on your own and, and make it your own and 
and do something unique with it. And I don't know if I sang on my own uniquely, but I certainly, um, I sing that song well. So um, that's what they went with and that's what I was happy with and and that's what we did. Yeah. I mean, when the chairs turned in the middle of the song, I was so fucking petrified. Like, sorry, I'm probably not allowed to swear, but. No, you're definitely allowed to swear. I I put this on an explicit rating just because I'm like, I will probably just swear and not realise it. So um, just in case they're swearing, it's got an explicit rating. So you're fine to swear if you want to. <laughs> Fan bloody fucking tasty. Um, yeah. Uh, I can't remember what I was saying. Something about the voice. Oh, that's right. Um, or the chairs I, turned. Yeah, I had no idea that they turned. I was just so petrified. I just sat yeah. there singing my song and trying to understand the emotion of the lyrics and getting it all wrong because I didn't know what I was doing back then, had no craft. And, um, you know, when you're younger and you just sing a vague emotion because you know the emotion of the song, (laughs) and I used to just try and imagine the world around me, whereas now I'm like, no, what's the specific thought process, you idiot, relating to the lyrics? What a twat buckle. I can't watch because it's just so embarrassing. And the voice is so hard to watch back. I I can't even watch the show in general anymore. You know, sorry to the amazing producers who run it and have been very kind to me um, and given me wonderful references and all that sort of thing. But I just cannot watch it. It's ruined. I know the backstory. (laughs) I know... I know how it works. I've seen the walls that disappear as you as the camera takes the place as you walk down the aisle. Like I just can't. Yeah. No thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so it's no um, magic. Yeah. You chose you like I said, you had all, all four chairs turn and you chose Kylie. Was that uh that's Kylie Minogue. Um was that when when you went in, did you sort of go, okay, if I can, I'll choose Kylie, or did you sort of make that decision on the spot? Oh, a bit of both. You know, you mm-hmm. don't really know because you go, oh, look, oh, I, I might pick this person, and then you go up there, and I just remember not hearing anything Ricky Martin said to me. Like, <laughs> I, I just just looked at him, and I was like, you are so gorgeous. <laughs> and then it was always down to him and, and Kylie Minogue, and mm-hmm. – and he was saying things and how he was Marius and Les Mis. And if I'd heard that in real time, I would have gone, oh, my God, of course, of course, it's you, it's you. It's always been you, Ricky. But um, in my head I just went, I'm so distracted. I think I'm drooling on national television in front of two million people. If I pick him, I will never be able to work hard. Like I just won't be able to do it. And my reasoning with Kylie Minogue, who, you know, was a good choice, I think, in the end, was um, – she was the only female on the panel and the yeah. only Australian artist who'd made her way um, into the international market. And I thought, yeah. that's an amazing businesswoman and entertainer and there's something that she's doing right. And certainly taught me a lot, of, you know, just being around her for, you know, the short time I, I remained on the show and, and I got a lot of corporate work afterwards. And I think it was just from learning how to um, present myself and promote promote myself and and forget that I'm a person which sounds weird but when I'm at work I am quite literally a product so um and that's what I'm talking about earlier on about rehearsal etiquette and and making sure you're on time and and you're polite and you do the work you know and if you're feeling self-conscious or underprepared as I sometimes did with um kinky boots when I came down you know Mm -hmm. I you guys have been rehearsing for how long before I arrived Oh, like maybe a month and a half. 
Yeah, so you're about six, seven weeks ahead and yeah. and um, I had to jump into the deep end and, and never say, oh, no, I don't know if I can do it. You know, you just yeah. can't do it. Stop being an idiot and, and get over it. it. Insecurity takes too long. I'm bored. Let's move yeah. on. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's yeah. what it means to be a, a performer. Ugh. Yeah. I do remember that when you came into to Kinky Boots because I wasn't initially the understudy for Lauren because um, I was playing Trish, one of the other characters, and our Lauren understudy had dropped out. But I was like, I want that. I want that. <laughs> and so because um, you and, and Rania and Martin now um, leaves weren't in the sort of first part of the rehearsals, any time there was like a Lauren part um, because you weren't there, I just did it. Mm -hmm. even though I wasn't the understudy and eventually our director was like so will you be our Lauren understudy I was like oh yes I'm so surprised by this offer of course I'll do it and then (laughs) I remember the first rehearsal you came to and I was like I have to be good I have to be professional because like I'm this girl's understudy and you just came in and like blew everyone away because you were just like but you just you came in with this confidence and I mean as you should and you just like did it and you didn't like build your way up to it you just did it and we all went shit she's good yep cool we're good with her (laughs) you have to in that scenario only because you know I'm the outsider I'm not the Canberrian and you all know each other (laughs) it's a lot of pressure but um but also I think that comes with not taking yourself too seriously and just going, oh, you know, the people that kind of hype themselves up into a into a frenzy and they go, oh, I don't know if I can do it. It's like, of course you can. You can do anything that you've set your mind to. It's just a room full of people that all have to perform and, you know, yeah. you're there to do a job and so are they. Um, that was a really fun show. I really liked it. My understudy was horrible though. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, <laughs> I should have pushed her down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we're getting sort of semi close to the end here and I like to ask a random question to everyone that comes in and it's a different question for each person Uh, so my random question for you is what is the best gift you've ever given not received given I suck at giving gifts. Oh, no. This is such a bad question for me, darling. Oh, I cannot. No. I cannot. I don't know. Okay. Okay. I, something come to me. Something come to me. Right. Just a second. I have two young cousins that I absolutely love and adore. They're like siblings to me. And I used to always prank my cousin Bailey with crap gifts. It's mm-hmm. just because I'm known for it. I'm known for giving terrible gifts. Um, I just suck at it. I'm like, that's something I'd really enjoy. You have it. Anyway, I gave him an egg carton with one egg in it and he opened <laughs> it up and he looked at me with horror, you know, what? This isn't a Nintendo or whatever the kids are into these days. So I don't know. And uh, I said, now this is a really special egg, Bailey. And I picked up the egg, gave it to him and then dropped it. And he screamed, and then it bounced. It was oh. a bouncy egg, and we call it eggnog. You're a trickster. I'm tricky, girl. You're tricky. We call this egg eggnog, and it lives in the fridge and has for you know a decade, and it tricks many a person. It lives on. The eggnog lives on. 
I remember once um, at work around Easter, they had like on the table, like something that was holding a bunch of, you know, those Cadbury, like the medium sized Easter eggs that are hollow on the inside. And we also, we had a rubber egg and somebody had one of the chocolate ones and like perfectly unwrapped theirs and then wrapped the rubber one back up in their foil and just popped it on in the hope that someone would go to eat it. <laughs> um, very tricky. And very evil for them very to do, evil. huh? I do yeah. not like. I will say I really enjoy giving gifts, though I feel like since I've gotten over 21, I feel like we're, we're past the stage where you give gifts to your friends every birthday, you know? So occasionally, like, it'll be a birthday where I'm actually supposed to buy someone a gift. I'm like, oh, shit, yeah, we do that now. Um, I have to buy this person something. But I can't remember how many years ago this was. I got my sister for her birthday a shower curtain. Now, this doesn't sound like a great <laughs> gift, but do you remember the TV show The Wild Thornberries? Yes, I do. Who do doesn't? you remember Nigel Thornberry, the dad? I do remember Nigel. And he had a saying which was smashing. And this shower curtain, <laughs> it's still, in, I'm at my parents' house right now and it's in the bathroom upstairs. It's amazing. And it has um, Nigel Thornbury um, in the shower. So he's got like bubbles covering his private parts. And he's got a shower cap on and there's a shower cap on either end of his mustache. And it says splashing. Oh my God. And then there's all of these like, <laughs> animals like there's a walrus and and there's a frog and there's like the little mermaid but they're all Nigel Thornbury versions of the animals so it's like Nigel Thornbury as the little mermaid Nigel Thornbury as a walrus and it is the best oh my lord I don't know if I'm impressed or horrified that would I mean you know showers good shower curtains are like semi see-through right so when you're in the shower you're showering with like a naked Nigel Thornbury (laughs) right next to you so it takes a little bit to get used to um mom and dad are about to renovate the uh the bathroom though and there's no longer going to be a need for a shower curtain I'm like but it's the best shower curtain in the world but um that's probably the best gift I've ever given and um and it worked out well because this was when both me and my sister lived at home. So it was her shower curtain, but we shared the bathroom. So I got to enjoy the shower curtains. What a sensual shower experience. Splashing. 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 Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Loved it. Um, and now my final question for you, which we sort of touched on a little bit earlier, but this is a question I ask everybody at the end of the podcast. The show is called Loud and Seemingly Confident because that's how I once described myself. Do you consider yourself a confident person? Yes, when I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I'm confident with things that I've experienced before. Yeah. But if I'm new to it, I'm shit scared, you know. It's kind of like when, you know, do you, do, you, do you ever let that fear sort of stop you from doing it or do you just go, I'm scared but I'm just going to do it anyway? Uh, I mean, I, I was always afraid at school, you know. I was always a slightly chubbier girl than, than all the kids in the class and I always had my – nose in a book and never really liked to 
take a risk or play sport with my friends or anything like that. And and then the older I get and the more people I lose, I realise that life is so short and I have to take risks. And if the only thing that will push me over that edge and get me to do it and commit to it is confidence, then that's what I'll give. Yeah. <laughs> Life's too short. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we had a bit of technical issues at the start, but we made our way through it. Oh, my God. I thought it would never happen. <laughs> um, but it's been absolutely fantastic catching up with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, please subscribe. Please leave a review. Give us five stars. You can follow me on Instagram at Chelsea J. Heaney. That's H-E-A-N-E-Y. You can also follow the podcast at Loud and Seemingly Confident, both on Instagram and Facebook. Brittany, where can people find you? Uh, on the Instagrams, Brittany with an I-E shipway, and I'm also on the Facey Bookie, you know. <laughs> Shoot me a message, especially if you're from Canberra and did Kinky Boots. I'd love to hear from you, doll. Yes. All right. Thanks very much, Brittany. We'll see everyone else next week. All right. Bye. See you later. Bye.